It's the 12th of August, 2022, and this is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. We've got a lot to discuss this week. A lot of topics, things like psoriasis, RA, fatigue, sleep, sural nerve biopsies, uh, uh, tofacit and the oral surveillance study, uh, HSP, mycophenolate, um, patient preferences. Uh, you know, I what's the order? You know, do you really have an order? I usually try to lump them together into themes. And today I'm going with like the top 10. And I'm going to, I got like 10 or 15 that I'm going to talk about. But what do you think is tops on this list? All right, place your vote now. Tops on this list is, yes, you guessed it, the Tofacitinib Safety 1133 Oral Surveillance Study, Uveitis in Spa, a new and improved Taltz Ixakizumab, Sural nerve biopsies? Really? You like that? And then lastly, don't take stomach drugs with mycophenolate. Isn't that a strange mix? But based on what you read and what you clicked on this week, that's at the top of the list. So let's begin with the study that just doesn't seem to keep giving more information. It actually keeps going on and on. It's like the EverReady uh, bunny. Um, it's the 1133 oral surveillance study wherein uh, Zeljance is studied against uh, TNF inhibitors uh, at Alimumab and Etanercept. As you know, 4,362 patients followed for nearly four years gave us the bad news that maybe JAK inhibitors were associated with a higher risk of MACE events, malignancies, and VTEs. Or could it be the converse, that the TNF inhibitors were actually better at preventing those events in a high-risk population than the JAK inhibitor. We've discussed that in the past. This new analysis looks at infections with this specific JAK inhibitor, tofacitinib, and what they showed was that really across the board, the hazard ratios were higher for all infections, serious infections, non-serious infections, Infections uh, affecting the elderly, they were all higher with the two doses of tofacitinib, 5-BID, 10-BID, with 10 milligrams being higher than 5, and those were certainly higher than the patients who took the TNF inhibitors. Again, everybody was pretty equal going in with disease activity. And, you know, these people had really severe disease. You remember the, the SDI was 40, um, and, and they all got better in the study. But the numbers are pretty clear um, as to what happened here. Serious infections occurred um, almost 10 to 11.5% in the TOFA group versus 8 in the placebo group. Fatal infections were 0.4% to 0.9% low dose, high dose in TOFA versus 0.3% with the comparator, which was, as you know, the adalimumab. Uh, participants, uh, patients also had, again, if they were older, they were the ones who had more infections than compared to the younger being 50 years old, older being greater than 65. So there is a, a safety concern with the, the, these drugs as well. But again, it's not surprising. You're looking at the worst possible patients with the most inflammatory disease, with a lot of comorbidities in play. There should be a high uh, infection rate in these folks. Uh, and it was high for both drugs but a little bit higher, significantly so, with tofacitinib. There was a, a, a nice study that looked at the um, what happened when you had uveitis. I, you know, the, the number that we've always taught was that 
patients who have, again, uh, acute anterior uveitis is not infectious. You know, 20 to 40% of them are going to have a spondoarthropathy. In this study of 189 newly diagnosed non-infectious anterior uveitis, they found that the prevalence of SPA was 56%. Whoa, we yo, as I like to say. Um, of those who had SPA, 93% were axial SPA, uh, 7% were peripheral SPA. Of the people who had SPA, three quarters of them were newly diagnosed with the onset of their uveitis. So again, you should buddy up with the ophthalmologist and say, your uveitis patients, you know, speed dial me, I'll see them. The uveitis patients, what predicted having a spondyloarthritis as an underlying disorder? Psoriasis, odds ratio 12.5. B27 positivity, odds ratio 6.3. These are really high. High CRP, odds ratio 4.8. And being male, uh, a double of the risk, odds ratio 2.1. I think that was a kind of cool report. So did you, based on what you read and what you uh, clicked on. You all like the uh, announcement that uh, TALTS or Ixikizumab has a new formulation. It's a new citrate-free formulation designed to reduce injection site pain and stinging. Uh, as you know, uh, Ixikizumab is approved for use in psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, uh, spondoarthritis, axial spondoarthritis, and non-radiographic axial spondoarthritis. And you seem to think that that was just hunky-dory wonderful. You know, I must say, I have not had much of this complaint in my patients. And I use a fair amount of TALTS. Um, in, in my patients with spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis. But all of you have told me, oh yeah, we hear it all the time. Well, now that problem seems to be in the rear view mirror with this new citrate-free formulation. Now, it seemed like in the past I did a lot of sural nerve biopsies in search for a vasculitis diagnosis. Obviously, it's a, it's a test you do in patients who have neurologic symptoms. Doing that as a blind biopsy is not a smart thing to do. But in this particular study of 91 patients undergoing sural nerve biopsy, they showed that um, what was important here was the length of the biopsy. Now, they didn't say in the abstract and what I read, as you know, the usual length of a sural nerve biopsy should be at least three centimeters and, excuse me, ideally five centimeters. <coughs> in, their, in their hands, 44% uh, of patients had a positive biopsy showing vasculitis. Uh, they said the, a positive biopsy was associated with longer sample length, other organ symptoms, and positivity. So not surprising. And yeah, you should be doing serial nerve biopsy as diagnostic test in some patients. Um, a study of diet and RA, I like this study because it compared 100 newly diagnosed RA to nearly 200 um, uh, age match controls. They showed that fish and seafood consumption was associated with a lower risk of rheumatoid arthritis about a 50% lower risk, in fact. But processed meats, you know, your bologna, hot dogs, and whatnot, increase the risk of RA almost threefold with an odds ratio of 3.45. No increased risk was seen with red meats or poultry products. So I know a lot of your patients seem to want to cut out red meats. They should be cutting out ham, <coughs> cured meats, um, bologna, things like that. A retrospective study of uh, Hinoxonline purpura looked at those who had GI bleeds. Uh, of the 99, about one-third had severe GI bleeds, and two-thirds it was said to be mild, and one-third was moderate to severe is the way they categorized it. 
overall, they said the risk of a severe GI bleed had certain associations. One, a summer association. This is a disease that does have a seasonal association. Two, the presence of a facial rash. I would have not expected that. High D-dimers, high neutrophil to lymphocyte ratios. High D-dimers greater than 0.9. Um, NLR, usually it's high when it's greater than 4. In this case, when the NLR was greater than 10.5, that was your indicator. I don't know if you look at neutrophil to lymphocyte ratios. It's a cheap and easy um, a measure of inflammation and risk of infection and inflammatory disease. Uh, I just put up a tweet because I ran across something I was reading um, about uh, the use of antacids and mycophenolate. Surprised to see that the aluminum hydroxide antacids like Maalox, Mylanta, and things like that lowers your um, mycophenolate C-max 33%, area of the curve 17% if you take the antacid with the mycophenolate. Oh, and by the way, the same is seen if you take a PPI with your mycophenolate, and that lowers the AUC by 33%. I was not aware of this, and I, you know, we certainly use a, like, a lot of mycophenolate. You should probably... Um, counsel your patients about splitting those two medicines up to two different times of the day. Speaking of mycophenolate, you know, patients we know with lupus are not very adherent to their medicines, especially um, uh, hydroxychloroquine. I found a small study that uh, we, I think we printed today of 38 kids, and this is age 12 to 25, who had childhood lupus, and they looked at their adherence rate. They measured it multiple ways. It was pretty abysmal. 65% of kids were non-adherent to their meds for lupus. You know, uh, they, uh, half of them said it was because of the side effects. 33% said they had problems remembering to take the medicine. 25% said they couldn't afford the medications. Those who were taking mycophenolate, 33% had a mycophenolate level that was basically less than one, meaning that that's the number who was non-adherent, 33%. So this is kind of bad. How are we going to tackle this issue of non-adherence to our medicines? Again, it's trust building, it's counseling patients, it's identifying you know, what their wants are uh, early on that's really, really important uh, and listening to them because often your wants are different than their wants and you gotta respect their wants and that goes on to what we call shared decision-making. Fatigue and psoriatic arthritis, fatigue and a, lot of the, uh, and a lot of our disorders is getting a lot of play these days. This particular study looked at, I think it was 289, 300 patients with psoriatic arthritis and found that fatigue was present in 78% of them. Oh boy. And it, it was a yes, no fatigue question and then a, disease, a fatigue severity scale of 0 to 10. Severity was associated with greater disease duration and disease activity, skin activity, um, swollen joints, and functional impairment. All those things were associated with more. So basically, the worse the patient, the worse their fatigue. Uh, and this is uh, something we struggle with because you might get control of their joints, um, but you may not control their fatigue. And that may not just be fibromyalgia. More importantly, when they looked at the doctors of these patients and looked at their charts, of all the patients who declared that they had fatigue, uh, fatigue was only listed as a problem, actually only listed anywhere in the note in 32% of the physicians who wrote those notes meaning that we're probably not tuned in enough, certainly not enough for the patient satisfaction. Another PSA study, I think this is interesting, looked at what drives them to make the drug choices that they make, 150 patients. 
and I asked them what's your most preferred you know reason to go on a biologic or to make a change you know we tend to think of swollen joints and painful joints not what that's not what patients think of number one oral versus parenteral sub q and iv they prefer oral number two they want to avoid side effects of medicines number three they want to get back to normal activity four they want to avoid infections we we in television have coached them up on that problem they interestingly they want to improve their psoriasis and their enthesitis they ask about Remission is seventh on the list of priorities, and last on the list was joint pain. The point here is, again, what's important to them is may not be important to you, and that might be a big mistake. Probably should begin or end every visit with, what's important to you? What should we be paying attention to that we're not? I think you'd get a lot, whole lot of conversation and respect from the patients if you did that. CARA, as you know, is a big registry of juvenile arthritis patients. They looked at um, patients of theirs who were on DMARDs or biologics and stopped them. It was a voluntary stop. Patients were doing well. But then the patients who flared and had to restart medicine, overall, what's the recapture rate on that? 55%, not bad. Highest in kids with systemic JIA, uh, 69%. Lower in patients with oligoarthritis. By 12 months, two-thirds of kids actually did achieve inactive disease with restarting medicine. Um, they had a better odds of inactive disease, clinically inactive disease, when they initially were treated with biologics or, and or when they restarted biologics. That was almost a threefold higher risk. You know, I, I rag on the idea of drug withdrawal, drug tapering a lot. You've heard me, you know, why would you do that? It's just nuts because there's a price to pay. But I must say that the recapture rates, uh, especially if you're stopping the biologic, are good. You know, the um, SEAM studies reported by Jeff Curtis a year or so ago looked really good in that regard. That was the RE SEAM study. Um, and there's a bunch of studies that basically say the recapture rate is really good. So it's not a horrible thing, but you may incur damage and it may incur some difficulty. But this data is encouraging for those of you who like to do tapering or drug withdrawals. Uh, cognitive dysfunction is linked to sleep. I, I think every rheumatologist knows that. A study of over 28,000 patients looked at those who had very low sleep uh, durations, less than four hours, excessive sleep, greater than 10 hours, and showed a statistically significant decline in cognitive function when compared to those who had normal sleep hours. Yes, seven hours or more is a normal amount of sleep. We don't talk about comorbidities much in other disciplines, but uh, fatty liver is something that plagues our patients. Found an interesting report in the GI literature that basically said um, uh, over 1 million patients, 17 countries studied, what's the prevalence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease worldwide? Think of a number. You're not even close. My goodness, 32%? I found that surprising. I would have guessed like 15, maybe 20 it's 32%. It's, it's higher in men than in women. Um, and this number is higher than previous estimates. More importantly, the number is going up. In 2005, the prevalence went from 25% to 2016 to 38%. My goodness, the overall incidence of fatty liver is 47 cases per 1,000 patient years. It's something we have to deal with. CDC and MWR came out last week um, on monkeypox, talking about the recent experience with, um, I can't remember how many patients, but it was a good number. It wasn't thousands. 
it was a few hundred, 99% were men, 94% uh, had male-to-male sexual content, contact, meaning that they were gay or bisexual and whatnot. Um, they underscored, 100% of people have rash. Um, and, but a lot of that, almost half of that, are genital rashes. So that may be something you're not seeing. You've seen the pictures of what monkeypox looks like. You know, these blebs, these bullae or papules on the skin that are shiny. Um, uh, and I think if you see those, you should be testing, regardless of what their background is or story. Something that looks like monkeypox should be tested. Uh, two-thirds have fever, 60% chills, 60% lymphadenopathy. They have a lot of rectal symptoms, bloody stools, purulent stools, rectal pain, uh, rectal bleeding in 10 to 20% of patients. So something to look at. Increased mortality with giant cell arteritis. I, you know, I don't like seeing these kind of numbers, but this was a Canadian study in appeared in arthritis care and research. Uh, 22,000 patients from Ontario were assessed by um, diagnosis code and whatnot. They looked at the death rate in GCA patients over the age of 50. In 2000, it was 50 deaths per 1,000. In 2018, it was 58 deaths per 1,000. Moreover, the mortality rates have gone up. The standardized mortality ratio, 2002 was 1.22. In 2018, it's 1.92. You know, we have new drugs. We're not using very much in the way of IL-6 inhibitors in these patients. We're still clinging on to that drug that we seem to love, that's steroids, even in high doses. Um, we might have to rethink um, and re-educate on giant cell arteritis management. My last report I found interesting. It was an association between CMV and ANCA association. This particular report said that if you had a prior infection with CMV, you were more likely to have venous thromboembolic events associated with your ANCA-associated vasculitis. As you know, CMV can cause vasculitis. Infections in CMV can cause ANCA positivity. We do know that ANCA-associated vasculitis patients have more VTEs. Now it's sort of trying to connect another dot between CMV and more VTE. So this was 259 patients. 12% um, of them developed, uh, of the AAV patients, um, developed a VTE. Uh, and again, 60% of these occurred within the first 12 months of the diagnosis. The screening for CMV seropositivity did not have to be an acute infection. It could have been an old infection as well. But those kids, those patients, had a threefold higher rate of VTE, 16%, versus those that were seronegative, where it was 5%. That was highly significant. Ultimately, CMV seropositivity was an independent risk factor for future VTE in ANCA-associated vasculitis patients. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any cases or questions, go to the email or the website at look at the box. It says, ask, push anything, click on it. Record your question. We'll feature you here on the podcast next week. Love to hear from you. Take care.